Father, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us and bless us. Um, thank you that you got everybody through all the snow and the ice and the freezing last week. Uh, pray for the days ahead, still in winter, and um, pray that you'll watch over us and give us what we need as we need it. And Father, as we get into your uh, word today, give us wisdom and insight into these uh, truths that you have recorded and preserved for us for all of these years so that we can have hope and uh, have life and have it abundantly. And we uh, ask all this for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all, today we're going to be, uh, we're going to pick up on page 46 in your notes. We're kind of right in the middle of everything. Uh, we've looked at the conversion of Saul, um, Saul coming to faith. And we're going to get into this last episode with Peter. But before we actually get into the text, if you'll keep your finger there at page 46, turn back over to the timeline on page 9. I've, I've given you a chronology there of some significant events related to the New Testament and Acts. And I just want to show you where we are uh, on the timeline here because we're getting into this section where that's going to be a little bit more significant and relevant. And so if you look on page 9, we are pretty much right in the middle of that chronology. Uh, you can pick up, you can see about the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, or 7th line down there. In A.D. 33, 34, uh, you see Paul in the bold right there on that line, that darker line. Paul witnesses the resurrected Lord on the way to Damascus and his commission as an apostle to the nations. Uh, that's what we looked at last time we were together. And then we talked about how from A.D. 34 to 37, Paul ministers in Damascus and Arabia. Uh, he's, he's also in Arabia. This is where Jesus apparently appears to him and teaches him for some time. And then uh, probably somewhere on A.D. 36, 37, Paul meets with Peter in Jerusalem. And then at that point, he goes back up to Tarsus uh, in the uh, province of Cilicia, Syria, Tarsus, Cilicia, you can see that there. And uh, from 37 to around 45, those are largely considered to be the silent years of Paul. We really don't know what's going on there. We just know that the last time we saw him, and this is the last thing that we read, that he had returned back up to Tarsus. And um, we're, we're going to start to get back into that narrative today. But uh, before we get back to Paul, and he's still Saul at this point. I really should call him Saul in there. He hasn't changed his name yet. Um, but uh, Paul, Saul, he's there in, in Tarsus. And uh, in, at that same time, kind of concurrent with that, Peter is sent to witness to Cornelius. That's what we're going to read today in Acts 10. And as you know, you probably know, this is a big turning point in the book of Acts, because uh, what the Lord is directing Peter to do is to go and open up the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations completely. And so we're, we're going to see what all that means today. That probably takes place somewhere around uh, A.D. 38. You can see there on the timeline. And then um, and then we're going to pick up with these other events. I'm not going to talk much about that today. Uh, we'll, we'll see some of that next week. In fact, we'll see a lot of that next week when we get on over into those chapters. Uh, and we'll come back and talk about this. But I just wanted to see where we are, that we're still fairly early on, right? This is, this is uh, A.D. 38, 39, 40, somewhere in there. 
Uh, if you look on down, Paul and, and Barnabas are going to do the first missionary journey in AD 46, 47. So we're still six, seven years away from that. And we're still uh, 10 years away from Paul writing his uh, first letter, Galatians, in AD 48, probably. So somewhere along and through there. Uh, so you can kind of see where we are. Um, and a lot of the events in Acts, in, in this latter part of Acts, really from chapter 11 on to the end uh, of, chap of, of uh, Acts, take place roughly from A.D. 40 uh, until about the mid-50s uh, A.D. So, you know, we're, we're in about a 15-year period where a lot of the action takes place. And so that's kind of where we are chronologically. Uh, anybody have any questions or comments on that before we jump into the text here? All right, well, let's jump into it before I'll think of some good question that I don't have the answer to. Uh, page 46. Now, we're at a point where I'm not necessarily going to read everything that's here. Uh, some of this, re read it. It's fairly self-explanatory. And uh, there's two episodes, uh, top of page 46, that take us back to the story of Peter. What's going on with Peter? Uh, the last thing that we read was that uh, Paul, Saul, he had gone back to Tarsus and the church, right, all the house churches, all the little gatherings that were meeting in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, they had peace and they were being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the, in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and it all increased in numbers. So uh, that's kind of the last thing that we read. And from there, it takes us back to Peter for this episode that begins in the end of chapter 9 and then takes us into chapter 10 um, and uh, kind of concludes Peter's story in uh, chapter 11, the, halfway through chapter 11. So all this is connected together from chapter 9 through chapter 11. And so you can see it starts out in uh, Acts 9.32 as Peter was traveling from place to place. He also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda, um, and there he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, make your bread, bed, and immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Um, uh, Luke is, is, is basically showing us that, you know, at this point, we're, we're some years after the early days, and Peter is still going around working signs and wonders and miracles, and more and more people are believing the message because of these works that the Lord's doing uh, in and through Peter. The next episode, one of the more famous ones, 936 through 43, um, Peter goes to Joppa, which is a town over on the, on the coastal side of Israel. And uh, there, there's a disciple named Tabitha, which is also translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. Her name, uh, Tabitha, means gazelle, which is interesting. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, and that's basically the same thing that's translated over into, into the Greek version there. Um, she was always doing good uh, works and acts of charity. She became sick and died. Uh, they wash her. They place her in a room upstairs. Uh, the disciples heard that Peter was over in Lydda, which was not too far away. So they uh, sent for him and said, hey, don't delay in coming. So Peter get up and goes. And um, she's dead. She's already upstairs. Uh, Peter sent every, sends everybody out of the room. 
Verse 40, he kneels down, he prays and says, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, saw Peter and sat up. Uh, he gave her his hand and helped her stand up. And then they called the saints and the widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Uh, these two uh, episodes parallel very similar things that Jesus had done, right? Uh, the healing, uh, the healing of a paralytic and also raising somebody from the dead. So, so Peter, in a sense, is continuing on the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and, and the, the, um, the story about uh, Tabitha there is, is significant because it kind of follows the same pattern, pattern that we saw in Luke. In fact, back in Luke um, eight, uh, chapter 8, you have the uh, story of the raising of Jairus' daughter, if you remember that, when we went through that. And, and this story almost parallels that uh, exactly. And so uh, th these two episodes are meant to just uh, hinge us back into the story of Peter, that he's still out preaching. He's doing these works of healing and, you know, restoration, raising people from the dead. And many people are coming to faith because of these works that are being done through Peter. And, and the really interesting thing, uh, <laughs> 943, you say, wow, why, why, would, why would Luke include this at all? Look at what it says, 943. And Peter stayed on many days in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Why would he mention that? I mean, it seems like an inconsequential detail. Why would he be with Simon the leather tanner? Now, uh, part of the reason is the story that we're about to get into, and I'm going to wait and tell you why that's significant as we get into this story here. Uh, and some of you may already know. You may have already picked up on it. But that, that takes us to chapter 10. And, of course, this is a critical turning point. The, uh, the, chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11 are really interesting. They're almost the exact same thing repeated. You have the story as it's being told, and then you have Peter reciting the story again, and it's almost the exact same thing. So we're, we're going to look at the first one and then just kind of skim over the second one because there's really not a whole lot that's new in it. And we'll talk about uh, the significance of that as we go. So here, uh, let's pick up in chapter 10 then. Um, so Peter's in Joppa, uh, staying with Simon, a leather tanner. And we shift gears a little bit. We, we go to another scene. 10-1, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. And about three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, and looking intently at him, he became afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And the angel told him, Your prayers and your acts of charity have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, uh, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household slaves and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. And after explaining everything to them, he sent, him, uh, sent them to Joppa. Uh, here, this Cornelius, this story also parallels, if you remember, the story of the centurion in uh, the Gospel of Luke, who was a devout man, took care of the Jewish people in his area and whatnot. So again, Luke is, is showing us that the Gospel is extending all the way from the, the lowest rungs of the social ladder up to the higher ones. Uh, this, um, this centurion 
more than likely is a man of some great means. You know, uh, men who attain that level within the Roman army and being part of this cohort that he's a part of. You notice he's got servants, he's got slaves. So he probably has a fairly significant household. And so uh, in part, I think Luke is including this uh, in, in the way he does, because this is a significant turning point to show that um, just as the gospel has gone to the poorest in the land and among the Jews, now it's going to this fairly affluent Gentile. Uh, and so, again, this gospel, is, is, it's crossing ethnic barriers. It's crossing social barriers. It's going from the least to the higher ups, um, from the Jews to the Gentiles. And we're seeing this spread by the work of God. And, of course, the Lord is working uh, in the, only the ways that he can to have that happen. Probably uh, it's I, I'm, the way he's described here. Notice uh, 10.2, he was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. Uh, he takes care of the Jewish people, always prayed. Uh, this is, he is probably not a Jewish convert, right? So he, he's what would be called a God-fearer, someone who prayed to, you know, the God of the Jews. And he had an end with the Jewish community and probably went to synagogue on occasion, but he wasn't a full convert yet. And almost all scholars agree that that's probably what, what was going on here. Um, but nevertheless, he right. Notice he prays uh, and so much so this, this this is really interesting. This is one of the real reasons that I think he's probably not a convert. Uh, if you look at 10 four, as the angel appears to him and he says, what is it, Lord? The angel tells him your prayers and your acts of charity have come up as a memorial offering before God. A, a memorial offering uh, in the first century was an offering that uh, could be given on top of the regular offerings that were required if you were Jewish. You know, there were, there were certain sacrifices and offerings that you were required to make. And there are other, other ones that were voluntary. You could do them, you know, thank offerings, praise offerings. You could do them at any time. And those were often called memorial offerings. But even more significantly, by the first century, um, Jews could give uh, memorial offerings, right? The giving of money and alms and so forth. Uh, instead of doing the sacrifices, if you were in the diaspora, if you were not in Jerusalem, if you were not in the Holy Land and you were somewhere else, right? You could give those offerings and they were given in place of not being able to go to the temple. And that, of course, that tradition continued on after the temple was destroyed in AD 70. That's one of the ways that the Jewish people kept their culture because then nobody could offer sacrifices. And so they taught that good works and charitable deeds are just as good as giving the sacrifices, right? Which th that's a whole other thing in and of itself. But, but, but notice that the Lord has accepted uh, these works that Cornelius has been doing, his prayers and his charities, right? And his acts of kindness. Uh, the Lord has accepted them as this memorial offering, right? The Lord has been pleased with what Cornelius has been doing. Um, and, and I would also suggest, you know, th this is this is one of these great places where you see the Lord has been at work for probably years and years and years in Cornelius's life before Peter had come. Because if, if Peter had just been sent to some other Gentile centurion who was not a God fearer and had not been hearing the stories, right, the, 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 the reading of the scriptures and the story of the Jewish people, that, that centurion would not have been primed to even understand what Peter was going to say to him, 
You, you follow what I'm saying? So the one of the things I love about Acts is it shows all this work that God does before uh, the word actually comes to him. Uh, the, if you grew up, if you grew up among the Wesleyans, uh, they had a great word for this prevenient grace. This is the grace that pre. And if, you, if you've been in Emmaus, you know, <laughs> uh, pre, a prevenient grace. It's the grace that pre comes before convenient. Right. When everything comes together, I, I think that's a, you know, it's a really interesting idea. Uh, and it's a great word for it. Uh, so here the Lord has been working uh, in Cornelius's life before Peter is ever sent to him. And when he comes, it's going to mean something. Almost everybody in the first century, uh, the Jews, the Gentiles, um, everybody that was part of some religion, they put a lot of stock in dreams and visions. You know, dreams are significant. Often it was the God speaking to you or God himself speaking to you in the case of the Jews. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, how significant dreams are. Uh, where the Lord shows up in a dream and says something to somebody. Uh, and so Cornelius would have realized because of this vision that what's about to happen is, is really significant, right? The Lord is doing something here. We need to be ready for it. So he sends for Peter and his servants go over to get Peter. So 10-9, page 47, um, it says, Now the next day as they were traveling and nearing the, the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop about noon. So as these people are coming to get Peter, he goes up to pray on the housetop. 10.10, then he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. Uh, in Greek, it, it is he, uh, he became ecstatic. The, the, the literal word ex, ecstatic is used here in Greek, right? That's not a word we use much anymore. Um, and, and the word almost literally means beside yourself, right? So in other words, Peter is having, in a sense, um, almost like an out-of-body experience here, right? He is, he is being given a vision that he is taking part in spiritually, right? Uh, so a very, very powerful vision. This is very similar to what happens to Ezekiel. If you're remembering Ezekiel, Ezekiel is in Babylon, but he has an out-of-body experience where the Lord takes him to Jerusalem, Right. And uh, allows him to see what's going on there. John in the book of Revelation, he boy, you talk about out of body experiences there. Uh, John is taken up into the heavens to see all the visions that he sees. So very uh, common thing to happen uh, with with the Lord intervening and giving people significant visions in the scriptures. So he has this vision, this this uh, beside himself experience. Verse 11, this is one of my favorite stories. I love this story. It's so good for so many different reasons. Uh, it says, now he saw heaven open and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lured by its four corners to the earth. And in it were all of the four footed animals and the reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. So all different kind of animals in here. Uh, the, the reptiles specifically, right? Those are unclean animals that are coming down. Uh, a sheet coming down, I think the old King James says it's a great net. Uh, the word in Greek seems to indicate like a linen idea. And I, I think the vision here, notice it's being lowered by its four corners, right? So it's like all these animals are in it and something's holding the four corners and it's coming down. This thing is just a tablecloth, right? <laughs> That's what's coming down. Uh, 
it's, it's fairly clear because notice, notice, notice the next thing that happens. 10.13, then a voice uh, said to him, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Okay? Now, now, think about this. Peter is hungry. He's on the roof. <laughs> All right? And what does the Lord give him a vision of? A great tablecloth coming down out of heaven and it comes down and as it opens up, he sees all of these animals in it. Uh, unclean animals and clean animals and everything else. And the voice tells him, uh, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Right? And Peter's response, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything common or ritually unclean. Again, a second time, voice said to him, what God has made clean, you must not call common. Now, this happened three times, and then the object was taken up. Right? Last episode, we read about Peter here. He's still denying the Lord three times. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is where I say, uh, just like Cornelius is about to get converted, Peter is about to get saved. Right? It's fine. All the lights are about to come on for Peter, right? Uh, now, now, clearly, he's a follower of the Lord Jesus and everything's working well. But this is where Peter finally gets it, right? This is when everything comes together. Uh, so here, this is clearly a symbolic of what's about to happen with Cornelius. And we'll see that explained in the next episode here. Uh, common or, or unclean uh, animals, uh, unclean animals are clearly the ones that they weren't supposed to eat. Shellfish, you know, reptiles, shellfish, catfish, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and things that were common, the word common there would mean something that would be okay on its own, but it's been defiled by being in the presence of something unclean. You follow what I'm saying? And so, um, which that is really interesting. Let me go back to Simon the leather tanner for a minute, right? Here is Peter uh, <laughs> arguing with the Lord, telling him no three times. He's not going to do anything that will make himself unclean. And where is he staying? He's staying in the house of Simon, a leather tanner, which makes you unclean. Right? That was a trade that made you unclean, right? And you had, if you stayed with a leather tanner or a shepherd, you know, there are several professions that made you unclean. Now, that doesn't mean it, you know, does you in forever. That just means if you go back to the temple, you have to go through the, the purification rites to make yourself clean again. And, and y'all know when, when we're using these terms clean and unclean scripturally, we're not talking about things that are dirty and not dirty. That's not the idea. It's, it's the idea is these things are unacceptable to be in the presence of God as you worship him. That's the idea with these things. And so this is not a moral thing at all. Yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with it. Yeah. Those were not moral things. No, yeah. And in fact, uh, almost, almost every one, of, and we know this especially for the dietary laws, they're completely irrelevant. Right? Because Jesus speaks one word during the gospel thing, and Mark tells us that, and it's when he's having the episode with the Pharisees, and they're getting all upset because, you know, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, will eat without washing their hands. And Jesus tells his disciples, listen, y'all pay very close attention. It's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, unacceptable to God. It's what comes out of your mouth. Because your mouth reveals what's going on in your heart. And down in the human heart is all kind of wicked, unclean things, right? And, and Mark includes the, just this little, this little phrase. And in saying this, Jesus proclaimed all things clean. 
Which means those restrictions could not have been moral. That there couldn't have been anything to them that were transcendent. Because if they were, how can Jesus just speak a word and say, hey, y'all, you can eat catfish now. <laughs> catfish, pulled pork, back on the menu, right? Now, now, I, now, I don't want to go too far into this, but most of the restrictions that are given under the law were, in a sense, a disciplinary punishment for Israel because they could not respond to God in faith. And just like you do with disobedient children, he just reins them in more and more and more to show them the consequences of what it will mean if they don't follow him in faith. How many rules and regulations did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have to follow? None. They didn't have any of the 613, right? The law, as Paul says, was given, is given to people who can't by nature do what is right. It's for the unjust and the wicked and the perverse and the people who by their own nature can't do the things that are pleasing to God, right? So here, uh, Peter is getting an eye-opening lesson. Everything that used to be considered unclean, the Lord is changing all that. Now, now he's revealing, we're not going to do those things anymore. Before, and, and Paul even uses this language, before the Lord treated Israel like children, but now that faith has come, I'm about to treat y'all like adults. And we're going to pull a lot of these reins off, right? So Peter, here he's arguing <laughs> with the Lord, even as he's unclean <laughs> in the house of, of Simon the leather tanner about what he will eat and won't eat. And, that, and this is, the eating thing is going to be a big issue with Peter going, going forward. Uh, we're, we're not going to get into this in Acts, but in Galatians, Paul talks about an issue after all this where Peter was going and when the uh, Jews would show up, well, before the, the Jews, the Pharisees from Jerusalem uh, would come, he would hang out with the Gentiles and party with them and eat pulled pork and catfish and everything else. But when the Jews came, he would restrain and not eat those things. And Paul got up in his face and said, you are a hypocrite. You know better than that. You better repent. You are not doing what's pleasing to the Lord. Now, think about that for a minute. That, I love that episode, too. Right? Peter is my favorite Disciple, because he reminds him so much of me, right? He's just, man, he, he's trying to do the right thing, but he messes up at every turn. I've got a saying in my house, if I'm doing anything, I'm making a mess, right? That, that's what I feel like Peter is doing so much uh, all the time. So here, Peter, he denies the Lord. And clearly, he doesn't get the vision yet, right? This vision is not about fish and fowl and everything else. So let, let's read, see what happens. 1017, and you can see that. Now, while Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked direction to Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they, so literally, as Peter's thinking, what, 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 what was all that about? Right? He doesn't know yet. The men show up and they call out. Uh, 1019, now while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, accompanying them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Right? So Peter, here's the answer to this vision. There's three men down there, go. Uh, don't doubt what's about to happen. Uh, I'm going to show you, because I sent these men to you. 1021, then Peter went down to the men and he said, here I am, the one you're looking for. Uh, what's the reason you're here? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, 
who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. So Peter in, uh, then invited them in and gave them lodging. And the next day they got up and set out uh, with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa also went with them. Now, so uh, Peter, they stay overnight. They get up to go the next day. Um, and Peter takes some witnesses, probably is the idea of taking the brothers with him, right, uh, to go to see what's about to happen here. 1024, now the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. So notice, Cornelius knows something big is about to happen, right? He, so he calls everybody he knows together that he thinks, okay, whatever's about to happen, they need to hear this too. 1025, now when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and he worshipped him. Look at that. That's interesting. The, the, the word there that's used is the word for, for falling down in worship. Uh, it's the same thing that John does in Revelation when the angel appears and the angel, uh, John falls down to worship and the angel says, get up. I'm just like you. I'm just a servant, right? Uh, same thing. Notice what Peter does. Uh, 1026, Peter helped him up and said, stand up. I myself am also a man. Now, while talking with him, he went on in and found that many had come together here. Probably Peter is thinking that Cornelius thinks he's an angel too, or some type of messenger, some type of divine messenger, right? In other words, if an angel was sent to tell Cornelius, this guy Simon is going to come tell you a message, he's thinking, well, gosh, if this is the messenger, then who is this, right? So, uh, and, and I meant to say the word worship, you know, uh, uh, can mean to fall down and worship somebody, or it can be like getting down on one knee, you know, as an act of uh, showing, you know, that, you know, you're the superior um, is standing in front of you. But nevertheless, uh, I think it's best to take it as worshiped here because I think Cornelius is probably thinking that Peter's somebody greater than the angel who came and prepared him in the first place. Uh, and then 1028, here we go. He's about to give, uh, <laughs> this is where it's all about to come together. 1028, so Peter said to them, listen, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. And that's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So I asked, why did you send for me? Right? <gasps> Light bulb starts to go off. Ah, okay. <laughs> that's what the vision was all about, right? I'm being asked to go and come into the house of these Gentiles. And there is no specific law uh, that forbids Jewish people uh, to, from entering the house of foreigners or Gentiles. That did become tradition, though, because you could be, you know, made unclean, and then you have to go through all the ritual purification stuff. So, you know, the tradition had become by the first century, just don't stay, go into the house of a Gentile. You know, don't, don't go stay or eat or do whatever. So, so there, that's more a cultural thing than it is a, a, a legal thing based on the law of Moses and so forth. Uh, but, but Peter here, he, he gets it and he knows that uh, now he knows he can go in and stay with anybody that's common or unclean. Uh, 10.30, so Peter asked him, well, why did you send for me? And Cornelius tells him the story. He says, now, four days ago at this hour, 
At three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then, a man in dazzling robes stood before me. Just, just an interesting sideline note. Notice he says he was praying at three in the afternoon. Uh, three in the afternoon is also probably the time that uh, Zechariah was in the temple offering the prayers and the sacrifices when Gabriel came to him to announce the birth of John. So, you know, three in the afternoon was one of the uh, times of Jewish prayer, um, one of the two major times, one in the morning and then one in the afternoon. Uh, so, just, you know, just an interesting sideline thing there. He says, now a, a man in a dazzling robe stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Therefore, I immediately sent for you and you did the right thing in coming. So we are all present before God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. Right now you see Cornelius realizes this man is bringing us a message from God. Right. And we've all gathered here before him to hear what you've got to tell us. Major oh man, big turning point. So 1034, this is Peter's last speech in the book of Acts. This is the last that we hear of him. So Peter began to speak. Now I really understand that God does not show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable, uh, acceptable to him. And that, uh, that word acceptable, um, it points towards something being um, prepared in a sense, right? In other words, if you're, if you're doing these things that uh, relate to right, if you fear God and do the things that are righteous, then you're doing the things that make you open to, to God's revelation. You follow what I'm saying? Right? It, it makes you open to understand what the one true God is actually doing, right? And that's the idea there. 1036. Now, he sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You need to circle that. He is Lord of all. Jesus has been uh, labeled as the Lord all the way up into Acts. But the sermons from this point forward, particularly as we go into the Gentile territories with Paul, this theme of Jesus being Lord is going to become more dominant, being Lord of all and the implications of that. You, and you, you get this shift away from, uh, it, it's not a shift away from, because clearly I know Paul teaches all these things, but you, you get this uh, greater emphasis in the way these messages are recorded on Jesus being Lord over all things, not just being a Jewish Messiah. He is that. But even more so, he is the Lord over all. And so we're going, to, we're going to trace that as we go along. Peter introduces that idea here in a really powerful way. Uh, 1037, he says, Now you know the events that took place throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That's a really interesting statement. Um, 1030, I think this is the only way this is stated exactly this way. Notice, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. 
um, one of the things as we get over into Paul, Paul in his letters is going to mention several times people being in captivity under the slavery of the devil. And this is the first time Peter has specifically mentioned this this way. Really interesting summary. Uh, healing all those who were under the tyranny of the devil. And the, there you think back to all the demon possessions that we've seen, right? Here, Peter just sums up all that as these people were under the tyranny of the devil. And Jesus did that because God was with him. 1039, now we ourselves are witnesses of everything that he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. Yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. There that statement is again. Notice uh, almost every time that crucifixion has been alluded to, uh, the, the apostles describe it as hanging him on a tree. And the reason I think they do that is because of what we talked about earlier. That's an allusion to Deuteronomy 21:23, where in the law it says anyone who is hung on a tree is under the curse of God. Right? So again, the apostles are, are emphasizing that Jesus, in a sense, uh, has come to fulfill all these things that were prophesied about him, uh, particularly in the prophets. And one of the things is he has come to take away our, our sins and our transgressions, right? He has become the curse for us so that we don't have to take the curse. And so there's a lot implied in that. And we, we talked about that earlier, but really interesting that he uses the same language here. They hung him on a tree. 1040, God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all people, but by us, witnesses appointed before him by God, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And then he commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now, there's another really interesting thing. I don't think we've had that mentioned yet in Acts. Uh, Peter emphasizes he is Lord of all. He is also the judge of the living and the dead. And then 1043, all the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Now, right out in the margin of that, just put a parallel to Acts 17. When we get over with Paul in his uh, second or third missionary journey, He's going to be in Athens and he's going to preach a sermon on Mars Hill. And it's going to parallel this sermon that Peter gives. And I almost think that the way Luke has, has uh, constructed these together, he has kind of given us a preview that what Paul preaches in Athens is the same thing that Peter was preaching back here. Right? In other words, the apostles and, and the men who are sent out, their message all works together. Right? They're all preaching the same message about Jesus. Um, so we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to Acts 17. Uh, here, Peter just, and this is really a great exclamation mark to everything that he's preached before. I had this, this is, I can't, I, a lot of times the classes are my confession time on how dumb I am. I was, I was reading this week and it suddenly hit me that probably if you, if you take all the sermons in Acts and you put them together, they form a complete whole sermon. That, that Peter's first sermon, right, begins things. Then his, circuit, his second sermon, he doesn't repeat things, he adds to it. And then the next sermon that comes in, it kind of takes some of the themes that Peter has and then it builds on that. And these sermons just keep on building as they go on in. And I thought, man, I may have to do that. Put, just put these sermons together and see how they relate and how they build and how they develop. 
Because uh, I think that's really important that by the time you get to the end of Acts, you've got all these significant sermons and they're meant to be taken as a whole to get the full picture of what the early church was proclaiming about Jesus. And, and it's amazing. I mean, you get everything. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's the ruler. He's the Redeemer, right? He is uh, the Lord of all. He is the judge of the living and the dead, right? He is the one to whom all men will give an account at the end of their life. Just incredible what all is revealed in the book of Acts. And then many of those things are developed in the letters in the New Testament. But we have them all in nucleus form here, all in, all in seed form. Really, really powerful. Uh, and, then, and then it happens. So Peter, there he goes. He, he's preaching. And uh, 1044, while Peter was still speaking these words, uh, notice it, <laughs> Peter's not through. <laughs> right? uh, this just happens in the middle of it before he can even get to the, get to the punchline. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Uh, that is another reason why I think Cornelius is not a convert, because he is among the uncircumcised here, if you follow me. right? Um, and this is significant, because this means that the gospel is going to the nations, to the Gentiles, and they're not going to have to come under the laws that the Jews have been keeping. In fact, that's going to be a major th issue from this point forward. And we're, we're going to get to that in chapter 15 at the first Jerusalem council, where that's the major question that comes up. What about all these Gentiles that have come into the church? Do we need to put them under the law of Moses and have them keep the food and, uh, you know, all the, all the legal issues? Uh, what needs to happen? So just, just hold that for a minute. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 15. But here, even as, as Peter's speaking, the Holy Spirit descends on them. Four, uh, 1046, and then they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. Uh, so here, almost similar to what happens at the day of Pentecost, they're speaking in other languages, and here they're simply declaring the greatness of God. Uh, they're, they're not doing this as a witness, as they did in Pentecost, more than likely, but this is just them being able to speak in other languages, praising God. And then Peter responded, uh, 1047, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now, there's the important statement. You need to underline that. That's going to be important going forward. Just as we have. And then he commanded them to be baptized uh, in the name of Jesus. Uh, and then they asked him to stay for a few days. Again, one of the things we've been tr kind of tracking along with is every time you have one of these big conversion things, it's always a little bit different. Notice the Holy Spirit comes here before the people are baptized. Earlier we had people baptized, like with the Samaritans, they were baptized and then the Holy Spirit came, right? So the Lord is showing, you know, uh, in, these, in these different ways that He's doing it, that He's sovereign over all this. But I think specifically in, in this context, it had to happen this way in order for Peter to really understand what just happened. That God has accepted these people, these Gentiles, who are not Jewish at all. He's accepted them in exactly the same way He accepted all of us. Right? Uh, Jesus even told parables. If you remember, there's some, some of His parables that seemed to allude to this kind of thing. You know, one of them He was talking about, uh, you know, the worker, the, the owner of the vineyard had workers and He sent them out. 
And some he sent out and they went out in the morning, right? They worked all day. And then some came in like an hour before quitting time. And they worked for the last hour. And when it came time to pay wages, the, the, the Lord of the vineyard paid them all the same wage, right? And then everybody got upset. Wait a minute, we've been here working all day, right? How can they get the same amount that we did? And the Lord says, I, listen, I'll do what I want to do. Because that's the way this thing works in here, right? And so here, the Gentiles are brought in without having to been under all the laws and stipulations and the rules, right? They've been out partying, eating pulled pork and drinking whatever they want to. Uh, Peter and them, they've been restricted their whole life, but it doesn't matter. Right? That's made completely irrelevant at this point. The Lord has drawn all people uh, back to himself. Hallelujah. Yeah, hallelujah, right? Yeah, oh man, alive, yeah. Goodness gracious. Woo. It seemed like the Lord was excited to kickstart this yeah. nation. Yeah. He didn't even let Peter finish. No. Yeah. He said, you, you, you're going to talk all day, <laughs> right. but I want to get going. Yeah, this. exactly. Right. Get this train going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And notice um, the, the way it's specifically described, 1044, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. I'll say something more about that in just a second. Uh, right, yeah, fell, some of the translations have here. Uh, and there's always this, the, the language of the Holy Spirit descending on people, falling on people, right? Uh, coming down on people the way it is here. So this is something, you know, apart from the speaking of the languages, that, that's evident when it happens, you know? And Peter and them are able to witness this and see it. And, oh, man. God is clearly working in this incredible way. Yeah, and it is it's a sense of excitement by the Lord, you know. And I'm sure part of it is, you know, the Father and the Son are up in heaven watching all this happen. And they're just sitting there, we're about to blow their minds, right? Go on, you know, and send him and blows the whole thing up. Uh, that is, this is, you know, this is such a significant turning point. Uh, and it is so much so that I, I think that's why Luke includes this two times, um, told in, you know, not as much detail, but the same stuff that Peter's about to recite for us, because this is the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles. And in a very real sense, this is the uh, beginning of the fulfillment of the promises made all the way back to Abraham, uh, where the Lord said to Abraham, right, through your descendants, uh, through your family, you are going to be a blessing to all the other families of the earth. And this is where now all the other families of the earth are now being drawn back into the promises of salvation and redemption uh, without, right, without distinction or without division, right? And so this is, this is, <laughs> this is going to be the question going forward, and we're going to see this in the next several chapters. Uh, okay, we, we got the Gentiles in, but how much are they part of us? Right? Are, they, they a are they like second-rate citizens? Are they... I mean, are we, are we equal? Are we on down? Are we, where are we in this? That's going to be the major question they're going to have to deal with. How is all this going to work together? And, you know, Peter, so awesome. Peter's going to be the spokesperson for that. Like, no, they are in at the same measure that we are. They're not second-rate citizens, right? They're in with us fully, equally, same rights, same privileges, same blessings, right? Peter's going to be the great champion of that. This same man who said, Look, I ain't, I, no, I've never eaten catfish my whole life and I ain't about to start now. Now he realizes, no, 
Nothing is unclean before God. There's nothing that separates these people from us, right? Which is really, really powerful. Um, Later, Paul had to correct him. That's what I was talking about. Yeah. No, but I mean, he had to pound the drum in some of his letters. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Years later, he was still yeah. dealing with that in the churches. The 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 division between the Gentile segment of the early church and the Jewish segment of the church lasts until the second century A.D. until uh, the Jewish church splits apart from the Gentile church, and that's why now we have Messianic congregations and Gentile congregations, right? So, like here. The, Christ, the Jewish Christians in town, they meet at their own thing, right? That'll happen in the second century. Uh, not because of anything that God did, but because we as fallen human beings, <laughs> we, we can't keep it together, right? We, we, it, it's hard for us to get over some of those barriers. So it is. It, it's an ongoing situation. Paul really addresses it. Yeah. really clear. Yeah. Times. What is wrong with you people? The, there is not one letter that he doesn't touch on it in some way or another. Yeah. Because he... He, uh, he, he, I think Paul realizes that that would be such a testimony against the work of Jesus if there's disunity in the body of Christ. Now think about that for a minute. And that's to, the, y'all know one of the last prayers that Jesus prays for his disciples is, Father, I pray that they may be one, completely unified, right? One as you and I are one, and, and then this is the killer part. So the world will believe that you sent me. Where there is disunity among Jesus' people, the world is able to say, I don't think that man did what y'all claim he did. Because if he did, y'all would all be together. Now think about where we are. And we... we and y'all, now I'm going to say something controversial. I'm going to get right back to Peter right quick. The reason our country is in the shape that it's in today is not because of the politicians or the government or anything else. It's because the church of Jesus Christ remains divided. And as it's divided, they do not see his power and glory. And people go to every other thing that they can go to because they don't see the power in Jesus. That's where we are. It's the failure of the church in our country. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Amen. Right? And, and now we know that. That's why we're here in the Bible study, right? So I'm not preaching at y'all. I'm just saying it's, it's disastrous times that we're living in. And let me also say this. We also know that all that was going to happen because the, G, the Lord told us before the end comes, all these divisions and fractions must take place, right? All these things are, are going to happen, but don't worry. I'm still in control, right? So Really, really powerful ideas. And, and all of them begin here with Peter as he opens the gospel up to the Gentiles. Now, just a couple of things as we close out. Uh, bottom of page 49, Acts 11, 1 through 18. Uh, Y'all can go read that. It's, it's, it, there is, I don't, I've read through this two or three times, and there's only one thing new that's added. Peter goes back to Jerusalem. All right. So they've just had this incredible experience. Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he gives a report uh, to the to the other apostles and the, the ones who were there uh, to the other apostles and, and brothers that the Gentiles had been welcomed or had welcomed God's message, too. So he goes back and he tells them the complete story. 
And uh, it's set, now, now this is the, the interesting thing. Uh, look in 11.15, bottom of, uh, right in the middle of page 50, chapter 11, verse 15. Peter says, Now as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. And then this is the uh, interesting statement. And we've looked at this before, uh, earlier on, er, very early chapters of Acts. eleven sixteen. he says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you remember, I, I gave you all a handout on the terminology, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there I said that, that it seems like uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit encompasses a whole lot of different things, but particularly... Uh, it represents this, the Holy Spirit falling on somebody, coming on somebody, uh, falling down on somebody. And so here, Peter remembers the words of the Lord Jesus earlier, and he realizes, well, that's what's happened to the Gentiles. They've been baptized in the Holy Spirit too, right? When the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Uh, Eleven seventeen. therefore, if God gave them the same gift that he has also gave to us when we believed, on the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? Now, when they heard this, they became silent. <laughs> Everybody's stunned. Right? What is going on? But then they glorified God saying, so God has granted repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. That's, now, look at that. That sentence is so power packed. Repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. Now, we're, we're going to talk more about that uh, because this idea of repentance is going to come up a, a couple more times. Earlier, uh, if you remember, I said that this word in Greek, um, it means a, a radical mental change. It's a mental, what I call a, a personal revolution. It's changing the way you think about everything. And particularly, it's a, a turning, a changing of your core loyalties and allegiances, Right? True repentance means I turn away from all of my false gods and idols and turn to serve and worship the one true God. And so everything has to change. And, and there's some significant things about that as we get into these next se several chapters. But I love that statement. He's granted repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. And that encompasses so many things. But y'all, I think y'all get the point. It's kind of a summary statement of uh, the Gentiles have heard the message, they believe the message, they receive the Holy Spirit, right? And that's all part of their uh, repentance, right? Them, them turning. Um, and and uh, that's going to result in life for them. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go. Now, y'all, we're right up. For next week, y'all read the rest of chapter 11 and read chapter 12. Uh, yeah, read chapter, and even on into chapter 13. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting to that point where... Um, we're going to get into action and, you know, we're going to read through these things and there's not a whole lot that has to be explained. So go ahead and read through chapter 13 and we won't get through all of that next week. But um, that'll give you the larger context because when we get to chapter 12 and then into the beginning of chapter uh, 13, that's where Saul uh, is going to come on the stage. He and Barnabas and they're going to begin the first missionary journey. Uh, leaving the land, going out into the Gentile territories, taking the gospel to the nations. And so we'll start to get into that next week. So go ahead and read the rest, chapter 11, 19, on through chapter 13, and we'll pick up with that next week. Uh, anybody have any questions or, or comments on any of that before we close out here? Yeah, Russell? In the, in the 
the uh, two of them had been when they went back to Jerusalem. Yeah. Them. Who were that? The, the apostles that were that were there. Yeah, uh, bottom of page bottom of page forty nine in Acts eleven. When I, I, I should actually read this sentence. Um, eleven one it says the apostles and the and the, and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had welcomed God's message also. So these are the apostles and the believers that are in Jerusalem and Judea and in that area that Peter went back to report to. Is that, is that what you're asking about? Basically, that's a pretty big area. Yeah, yeah. Council meetings and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, haven't, they haven't had, um, and that's really a great question because uh, next, next week as, as we get into chapter, into chapter 11, um, it, we're, we're going to hear about uh, Peter and the others going and reporting to the elders who are at Jerusalem, right? So, and there's, there's no mention of when they come on the scene, you know, but apparently by the time we get to you know, like mid-40s, within Jerusalem, that early church has developed a group of apostles, you know, the apostles along with elders uh, that kind of oversee everything. And, and, then, and we're also going to see Paul as he plants churches, he'll go back through and he'll start to appoint elders in the churches. So there's this other category of the elders that are going to come on the scene. And the interesting thing is, Luke doesn't make a big deal about them. It's just kind of like they show up. And, and I think the reason is, uh, earlier we've already seen the elders mentioned several times, particularly the Jewish elders. So when the Sanhedrin met, met together, it was the uh, high priest, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the elders. So this is just something that was t probably brought over out of Judaism that, you know, as we're overseeing things, uh, we definitely need the apostles as the, as the witnesses, but we need spiritually mature men to watch over everything that's happening. And that, that's probably how that develops. And Luke doesn't, they just show up and we don't know how, but they're probably part of that group as well as that's starting to develop, you know, as the church does that. And, you know, and so much of the early church is really, uh, it is absolutely just an extension of Judaism. M many of the things that the Jewish people were doing they brought it over and they filtered it through Jesus, but kept some of those traditions, you know, and the elders and uh, even, you know, the synagogue becomes the model for the early meeting of the church, uh, churches, house churches, you know, uh, content would have been very different. But yeah, so a lot of those things carry over. Yeah, it's a good question. I, the, as I read through the, the uh, almost any time I read through the scriptures, the, the one of the things that I come away with is, man, this raises so many more questions, you know. Than, than I can find answers to sometimes. Uh, re really, really fascinating the way that works. Anybody else? Any questions or comments on that? All right, y'all. Well, let me pray for us and we'll turn loose here. Uh, Father, we thank you for all the ways that you have um, uh, made yourself known to us. I, I, in these episodes we read today where we think about you preparing Cornelius for probably years before Peter actually came to him and, and preached the truth. Uh, of the gospel about Jesus to him, you had been working in his life to put him in the right places so he would be prepared to hear that message when it came. And I think about my own life and how looking back in hindsight, you did that same thing to me. And every one of us sitting in this room, uh, you, you did that. You were working in our lives long before we ever knew what was going on. And so, Father, we thank you that, that you love us enough uh, not to leave us or abandon us as orphans, uh, but you have literally been calling to us 
uh, working in different ways to ultimately call us to yourself. And we don't want to take that for granted uh, because it's such a great uh, expression of your love for us, a love that you had for us before the world was even created. And so we thank you for giving us these truths so we can know you and know what we mean to you and how we stand before you. And we uh, give you all praise for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. Thanks a lot, y'all.